you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. Again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're grateful to have you. It is our common practice to preach expositionally through books of the Bible, and we are currently making our way through the book of 1 John. We are getting close to the end. We are entering into the final chapter today, and so we have a few more weeks, and we will be going on to something new. But today we will be in 1 John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. For worshipers in training, for you children, our, the title of today's sermon is Vital Signs of Eternal Life. Vital Signs of Eternal Life. And your key words are born, faith, and overcome. In the medical community, uh, in the EMT field, if you are familiar with these people who drive ambulances, whenever they're called out uh, for a an emergency, whether it be a wreck or uh, someone's having a heart attack or something, what is the, the first thing they do when they get on the scene? Do they just look at the person and see, well, he's unconscious, obviously he's dead, let's call the coroner and be done with it? No. The first thing they do is they begin to check for vital signs, signs of life. Uh, according to Wikipedia, vital signs are measures of various physiological statistics often taken by health professionals in order to assess the most basic body functions. Vital signs are the essential part of a case presentation. So whenever a doctor or an EMT is approaching a person who is unconscious and there's a problem, they begin to check vital signs. They check for body temperature, pulse rate, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate. These are things that will ascertain their condition if there is life. As the Apostle John moves towards the conclusion of this letter, he brings together into one paragraph the three tests of authentic Christianity that he has been repeating throughout this book. He does this to summarize and to show that these three tests are part of an interwoven fabric. They all depend on the new birth as their foundation, as we will see this morning, and we may view them as three vital signs of the new birth. If a person has truly received new life from God, these vital signs will be evident. While they grow stronger over time, if there is no evidence of these signs, a person needs to examine whether or not he has truly been born again. And so that's what we will be looking at this morning, these three tests or these three signs of life. I want to begin reading our text first, uh, the first five, chap- first five verses of chapter 5 of 1 John. Follow along if you will. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That is our text for this morning. And the outline I will be following, it is not a progressive outline where we'll be going verse by verse because John is interweaving his thought throughout these five verses. And so we will be jumping back and forth all through them. But the outline I will be following is the first point I will look at this morning is that the new birth is the foundation of the Christian life. The second point, the first vital sign that we will look at this morning is faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The second vital sign of the new birth is love for God 
and for his children. And then final, the third vital sign of the new birth is obedience to God's commands. We will be looking at these in, or, in this order. John mentions being born of God in verses 1 and in verses 4. The new birth must be the starting point of any relationship with God. You can go to church all your life. You can be religious and you can be moral. You can give your money to the church, but none of that will get you into heaven. Jesus told Nicodemus, who was, mind mind this, was a very religious and moral man. Nicodemus was. And Jesus told him this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can dress up a corpse in the finest of clothes, but it is still a corpse. What it needs is life. Spiritually, before we are born again, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2. All of the finest religious clothes in the world will not help that corpse. What we need is that new life that only God can impart. We cannot attain to this new life by our own efforts. It is not a matter of trying harder or of cleaning your life up with New Year's resolutions or of going to church more often or anything else that you can do. Rather, the initiative and the power lie with God Jesus said in John chapter 5, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. That was true of Jesus' miracles of raising people physically from the dead back to life. But it is also true spiritually that the Lord Jesus gives life to whom He wishes. God is sovereign over our salvation. The Apostle Peter explains, exclaims in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. John is using the same language here in these verses we're looking at this morning. The Greek word that is here translated has been born grammatically is in the perfect passive tense. The perfect tense describes an action or a process that took place in the past with results continuing into the present. And the passive voice means that the subject, which is in this case the person who has been born born again, is receiving the action of the verb of being born, which is to be born. So in other words... Regeneration, or the new birth, is totally, totally a work of God. We cannot play an active role at all because we are, as the Scriptures plainly teach us, spiritually dead. Many mistakenly think that being born again is a matter of our free will or our choice. Certainly we must choose to trust in Christ, but the question is how can a dead sinner do that? John 1.13 states, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Just as none of us had any say in whether we would be born physically, neither did we determine that we would be born spiritually. It is entirely a work of God according to His sovereign will. The Bible teaches us clearly that the reason you choose to trust Christ is that God has quickened you from the dead. Otherwise, no one could or would choose to trust in Christ. There would be no new birth. So the new birth is essential. 
Knowing this foundational truth will now let us begin to go into these vital signs of spiritual life. But keep that in mind. All of these, all of these signs, all of these tests that we have been talking about stand on the firm foundation of the new birth, regeneration in Christ, which is a sovereign act of Christ in a dead sinner's life like you and me. So our first sign this morning, the first sign of vital sign of new birth, the first test that we have already looked at earlier in our past sermons is faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And he says in verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Jesus taught very earlier in his ministry in Matthew chapter 16. He's asking Peter or the apostles a question. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. John both begins and ends this section of passage of Scripture here with an emphasis on faith in Jesus Christ. Remember the words faith and believe in the Bible are synonymous. And I want us to, I want us to point out three things about faith that John is showing us here this morning. Faith or belief. Number one, faith is the result of the new birth, not the cause of it. This is kind of a continuum of, continuation of what I was just saying earlier. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Again, the Greek verb is in the perfect tense, indicating an action that has taken place in the past, continuing results to the future. A person who has been born of God in the past will be characterized by ongoing faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. So one way that you can tell you have been born of God is to answer the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Many Christians object to the teaching that regeneration comes before faith. Critics say, how can God or preachers, for that matter, call upon people to believe in Christ as Savior if they cannot believe? So they make the means of regeneration rather than the result. Faith, that is. But to these critics, we must pose a question. How could Jesus command a man, Lazarus, to come forth? Lazarus was in the grave dead for three days and he commands him to come forth. Isn't it futile to command a dead man to do anything? I, I have not been successful at that myself, but I mean, Jesus did it. Yes, and let us, it is the will of Jesus to raise him from the dead. It is futile. But then with the command, God imparts the power of new life so that Lazarus can obey the command. Lazarus coming forth is clear evidence that he has already received new life from God. So faith is the, uh, is the evident result of the new birth, not the cause of it. And Paul clearly says this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. The second thing I want to point out here about faith is that it has a clearly defined object. 1 John 5, 1 again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In verse 5, everyone, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Saving faith believes in the person of Jesus. Specifically, it believes that He is the Christ, the Son of God. 
To believe that Jesus is the Christ means that the historic person, Jesus of Nazareth, is God's anointed Messiah. The one promised and prophesied of in the Old Testament. He is the one who would save his people from their sins, as John the Baptist proclaimed about him. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God means that he is the eternal God. That we believe that, that he is the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. The Jews in Jesus' day clearly understood that his references to himself as the Son of God were a claim to deity. When Jesus stated in John 5, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working, the Jews sought to stone him because he was calling himself equal with God. He was calling God his own Father. Jesus responded to these charges not by correcting their understanding as being wrong, but as affirming his equality with God. John affirms that the purpose of his gospel in John chapter 20 is that so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. To believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, means that you entrust your eternal destiny and your right standing before God, not to anything in yourself, including your faith, but entirely to Jesus and His substitutionary death on the cross for your sins. You believe that He paid the debt to God that you owe. And your faith rests completely upon the personal work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And our motto is, Solus Christus, in Christ alone. And finally, the thing we see here that John is teaching us about faith is that it has a clearly observable result, and that is namely overcoming the world. Verses 4 and 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Three times John mentions overcoming the world. Remember, world here refers to the evil organized system under Satan's dominion that is opposed to God and his purposes. The Greek noun for victory in in these two verses is the same root as the verb for overcome. So these are terms for warfare or battle. The Christian life is armed combat against the enemy of our souls, namely Satan. But take note here that John is not commanding us to go out and overcome the world by our own efforts. No, he is saying just the opposite. Again, the word has been born is a perfect passive verb in the Greek, which means past results carrying over to the present. The word, tra- the word translated overcome is a present tense verb, which asserts something that is happening right now as we make this, as we read these words. In simple terms, what John is saying is that if a person has been born of God, at some point in the past, he or she is still born of God today. And he is presently overcoming the world. You have been born of God in the past, that continues to the present, and that is causing you to overcome the world. It's not maybe, it is. It's a statement of fact. In the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, we see the letters that Christ has dictated to John to be delivered to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And at the end of each letter, he says something about them overcoming. And it's this exact same word that we're looking at here. I'm going to read through those real quick. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, writing to the church of Ephesus, to the one who conquers, my, my translation says conquer, your translation may say overcome, it's the same word. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church of Smyrna in verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The church of Pergamon in verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the church of Thyatira in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. To the church of Sardis in chapter 3, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To the church of Philadelphia in chapter 12, or verse 12 of chapter 3, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven in my own name, with my new name on it. And then finally, to the church of Laodicea in verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Those are glorious words written to that church, but they are, they are applicable to us today because who is the one who overcomes? The one who believes in Jesus is the Son of God. And again, earlier in Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us this great uh, encouraging words in, in verse 35 through 37. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we have been killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That, that's the same Greek word. It's called hupernikeo. It's this It's got the additional prefix added to it, more than conquerors. We are super conquerors through Christ who loved us. We are overcomers is what the Scriptures is calling us. I just recently watched the movie uh, We Are a Marshal. If any of you all have seen that, it's the movie about the the football team, the college football team from Marshall University that was killed, the entire team and coaching staff were killed in a, in a plane crash in the early 1970s, and it was a very good movie. It was uh, inspiring, and but one of the things about them, they had this rally cry. Everything they did, they would say, we are Marshall. That was their rally cry. They would do that before football games, or they would do that as they were trying to encourage people to get back on board with rebuilding the program. And so in that sense, we also have a rally cry. We are overcomers. But it's not an emotional rally cry like a football team has that just all it can do is build uh, energy in the team to get excited and stand up and play hard. It's more than that. Because the fact that we are overcomers has nothing to do with our ability. We don't overcome because we have this great ability and knowledge and power and strength to get up and do the things that God calls us to do. We are overcomers because of the Lord Jesus Christ who has died for our sins. And our faith in Him, our faith in His death for us is what makes us overcomers. So that is that we can go forth with that rally cry. But it's a rally cry of glory to Him and Him alone.
because he is the one who has overcome, as he said in Revelation 3.21. He says, as I also have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So faith in Jesus is the first vital sign of eternal life. The second vital sign of eternal life is love for God and love for his children. But I want you to take note that verse 1 links both faith and love. And that's the one thing we're going to be looking at this morning is that all three of these tests are inextricably linked together. They go together. They cannot be separated. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves whoever has been born of him. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here since we have thoroughly studied this in the last several weeks, going pretty much all the way through chapter 4, talking about this point of loving God and loving each other. John's point is the same as it was here as it was there, that love for God and love for His children are inextricably bound together. If you love the Father, you will love the child born of Him, is what he's saying. You can't separate the first and the second greatest commandments. Love for God and for His children is primarily an act of the will, though. I want to make that point this morning. Love for God and His children is primarily an act of the will, not an act of the emotions. Love for God is expressed here by keeping His commandments. Loving God's children is seen when we love God and keep His commandments. While you should have feelings of love for God and for His children, feelings are not the basis of that love. As we've seen, biblical love is primarily a self-sacrificing commitment to seek the other person's highest good. And at first here, it sounds as if John is reasoning in a circle because in last week in chapter 4, verse 20, he said that you can't love God if you don't love your brother. But here in 5.2, he states that you can know that you love your brother when you love God. So how do we sort this out? Well, first, I think it's just it's simple. First, John is at pains to show that you cannot divorce love for God from love for your brother and vice versa. They go together. One clear application of verse 1 is that we must love all that, we, all that have been truly born of God, regardless. If there is evidence that a person is a child of God through the new birth, then he is my brother. Even if I disagree with him about certain doctrinal matters, I must accept him just as Christ has accepted him and has accepted me. While we may need to draw more narrow lines when it comes to laboring together in the gospel, nonetheless, we should not draw these lines when it comes to loving one another. And so that's what binds the, the, the church uh, universal and, and all the local churches together. If we have belief in Jesus and if we're loving God and keeping his commandments, we can all love one another, even though we may... Uh, serve in, in, the, in the ministry of the gospel in separate venues and in different ways, nonetheless, we can love them. And that's one of the things I think we really experienced in working with these other churches on this Habitat House. We've seen that in action. We've seen other churches and other Christians coming together. We didn't know anybody, didn't know them from Adam. But here we were on side by side working and loving people through these deeds. So John states that love for God... That love, that love for God's children must be coupled with love for God to be genuine. And love for God can only be true if we obey His commandments. And that leads us to the, four, to the third and final vital sign this morning of eternal life, which is obedience to God's commands. Verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God 
and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. John uses the word commandments here three times. As we've seen, John is not saying that believers obey God perfectly. No. Rather, he is looking at the overall direction of our lives. A Christian's life should be marked by obedience out of a heart for love for God. When a child of God sins, he confesses that sin so that he can be restored to fellowship with God. The person who claims to be born again but who is not concerned about a lifestyle of disobedience to God's Word should examine to see if he really is in the faith. Loving God and obeying His commandments are on two sides of the same coin. To show the unity of this principle, I'm going to read two passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And then John 14:21-24 says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but my Father who sent me. Who sent me. John adds a very uplifting word at the end of verse 3. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. He does not mean that obedience to God's commandments are always easy or effortless. Can anybody attest to that? Amen. The warfare terminology of overcoming and victory shows that obedience is often a battle. The world, the flesh, the devil, and myself are my formidable foes that we must constantly fight against. So in what sense can John say that God's commandments are not burdensome? Well, I'll propose three this morning. First, God's commandments are not burdensome because we have a new nature that has the power to obey. And I want to ask you to flip back, hold your finger there, but flip back to Romans chapter 6 because I want to read a rather lengthy passage. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. I tried to break this up, but it just it all goes together so good I have to read the whole thing. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who, were, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You see what he's saying there? The unbeliever acts like he does because he is acting in ignorance. He has no life in him. But when the believer, when you Christian, when you sin, it is not because you are enslaved to it or because you're ignorant or because you're a victim. You sin because you choose to sin. I sin because I am choosing to present my members up to sin. In full knowledge, in full light, of God. And so there are no excuses for us. We have to, the excuse game must stop with us. It does not work. It does not work with God because He has clearly showed us in this that we have a new nature. Our old self was crucified, it was put on the cross with Christ. It's dead, buried with Him. And why did we die? Not so we could just die to sin, but we, so that we could live with Christ. Not in eternity future when we go to heaven with Him when He returns or when we die, but right now. Christ is alive spiritually right now. Physically, He is alive and so are we. If we are born of God, then we have a new nature that can obey God. And these commandments are not burdensome because now for the first time in our life, we have the ability to obey God. Second, God's commandments are not burdensome because they are the commands of God, not of man. The commandments of men are burdensome. Invariably, they stem from an attempt to earn standing with God or status before men through a system of human works. The Pharisees are the classic example of this. They had added their many hundreds and hundreds of commandments to God's commands of what He had clearly revealed. But Jesus called them heavy burdens. Even God's law, apart from the grace of Christ, was a heavy yoke that no one can bear. But God's commandments come from an all-wise Heavenly Father designed specifically for our good. Our gentle Savior says in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burdens and commandments of men are heavy burdens. But the commands of Christ is an easy yoke. It is the yoke of Christ. It is no burden at all. And then finally, God's commandments are not burdensome because they are given and received in the context of love. I don't think we realize this enough, that God's commandments are given to us in the context of love. 
A loving father does not tell his child to stay away from a busy street because he wants to take away his fun. Kids understand that. But because he loves him and wants to protect him from injury or death is the reason he does that. An immature child may think that his father's commandments are restrictive, but he needs to trust that his father's love is for him and he needs to obey anyway. An immature believer will be the same way, may view God's commands as restrictive. But our Heavenly Father knows that sin will do what to us? It will damage us. And ultimately, it will destroy us. It will lead to death. If we have come to know His love in Christ through this new birth, then we must trust that His love for us is genuine and we must obey His commandments because they are coming from a loving Heavenly Father who wants, to, who wants the best for us. It's not to squash our fun. And really and truly, when, you indulge, when we indulge ourselves in sin, ultimately we find out it is not fun because it goes against who we are. It's not our nature. And if it is fun to you, then maybe there is something wrong with the nature. We must examine ourselves. When we see that God's commands stem from His love for us as His children, we, we ultimately see that they are not burdensome. So these are the three vital signs of eternal life. Belief or faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Love for God and love for His children, which go hand in hand together. And obedience to God's commandments. And John here has made it painstakingly clear in these passages this morning that these three are together. They are inextricably linked. Two out of three will not work. One out of three will not work. If in your mind's eye you can picture a circle with the new birth written in the middle of it, and on three points, love for God and His children, belief in Jesus as the Son of God, and obedience to His commandments, what are they doing? They circle in an endless circle around that nucleus of love of the new birth. You cannot have one without the other. They are true of us all. Are they not true of us at all? We must have them all. And ultimately, when we have that, when we have love for God, when we have love for God and His children, when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, and we understand what that means, it's not just intellectual belief. We live that belief. Because belief that is not lived out is not real belief. When we understand that love for God and love for His children and belief in Jesus Christ and obedience to His commandments are part and parcel of the same person, then we are functioning as a healthy Christian. We are, we are living in our new nature. And ultimately that will lead to what? We are overcomers. We have the victory in Christ Jesus. We can overcome sin, hell, and the grave. We can overcome this sinful nature in the world that is allied against us who tells us that God's commandments are burdensome. Does not the world tell us that? Over and over and over that, the work, that its way is the easy way and God's way is the hard way. Well, that is the same lie that Satan told Eve. Has God said? And so we have to combat that with the truths of Scripture that, that God's commandments are not burdensome and faith in Him is real and alive and vital. 
And so in conclusion, I want to ask you a few questions. How are your vital signs? If I was to come around to you today as a spiritual EMT and put my hand on your throat and check your pulse and check your heart rate, what would I hear, spiritually speaking? Would I hear signs of life or would I hear no sign, no life at all? What do they tell you about your spiritual condition? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you live that? Because you cannot say, no, Lord. That's an oxymoron. Because He's either your Lord or He's nothing to you. You cannot say no to Him and His commandments. Do you love God and do you love others? We have talked about that a lot over the last month. How are you living that out now? Have you been struck with the enormity of loving God and loving others? Is it, are you beginning to wrestle with your own emotions? Are you finding it easier to, to deal with conflict with other people? Because in the last month, how many people in here have had an opportunity to work out conflict resolution with somebody else? Really? That's all? Then we ought to be a dynamic church. I should see every hand up in this room. You have had, if, if not with nobody else, at least with your spouse. Right? That's right, Brother Darrell. I've seen her hand go up like that. <laughs> no, I'm serious. How many of you have had an opportunity to put this into action? All of us have. What are we doing with it? Are you just brushing it off as another good speech on Sunday? Which this probably isn't. But... Are you being challenged with the enormity of God's Word that says you cannot say that you love God and hate your brother? And if you hate your brother, then you don't love God. If you don't keep His commandments, you don't love God. Thus, you cannot love your brother. And if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and live that out in faith and obedience, you don't love God. You don't love your brothers. And you are not being obedient. You see how they all fit together? They are part of one healthy person, one person who has life in him, spiritual life. And so I'm asking you this morning, what are your vital signs telling you? Are they strong? Do you have a strong pulse rate? Then praise God. Give God the glory for that. But continue to work because they can fall off. We can struggle. Every day is a struggle. Continue to praise God for that, but continue to grow. Are your signs weak? Well, then what, does that, what, do you must, what must you do? You must turn to Christ in faith and plead for, with Him in repentance to help you to fulfill all those things and to do all things because you love Him. And if you pray that prayer, I promise you it will be answered. Are you overcoming the world or is it overcoming you? I mean, this, this should be one of the easiest ones that we can look at individually at ourselves. Are we overcoming the world or is the world overcoming us? Regardless of what the answer to these questions are this morning, whether you think that you know in your heart that you, you have no life whatsoever, you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, or whether you are a Christian who feels that God is really blessing you to grow in these ways and you have really been challenged in the last few months as we've gone through this book and you were striving to love God more and you were loving others more and you were growing in your faith, what is the answer for each of us every day? 
the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to all of us. In the book of Acts, whenever the people were preached to, the very people that God, that that had crucified Christ and stood in the crowd and said, crucify Him. Those very same people Peter preached to a few months later. And what happened? When they heard this, they, they were cut to the heart and they said, Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see? They were cut to the heart. God had revealed to them their wickedness and that this man that they had crucified was the Son of God. And they were cut to the heart. I kind of imagine that they were running around ready, just going crazy, bonkers. They, could, they didn't know what to do. My gosh, we just had the Son of God right before us preaching and teaching us and we crucified Him. We do, we do the same thing, right? But what do they say? What must we do? What did Peter say? Well, it's too late. You had your chance. You crucified him. Now it's too late. Did he say that? No. He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the good news of the gospel for the unbeliever. There is never too late. You can never do any, anything too bad to not be redeemed by Christ. Because what could be worse than actually standing there in the crowd and shouting, crucify Him? What could be worse than that? I don't know. That was pretty bad. And these people were saved by the Holy Spirit. And so the good news of the Gospel for you this morning, if you don't know Christ, is that He calls to you, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Weary and heavy laden in the burden of your sin. If you die today and stand before a holy God in that sin, He will have no other choice but to cast you into hell. His justice demands that. But God has provided the the answer to that in in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And His burden is light because He took the heavy burden of God's wrath for us. That is the answer. Flee to the cross for the believer whether you are struggling in your obedience, whether you are struggling in your faith, or whether you are thriving, the answer for you every morning is to still wake up and with the enormity and the understanding that I am forgiven in Christ today again. I did enough yesterday to completely wipe out everything I've, that, that I've done good in the past. That's, new, that's true of me every day. But the, the, the good news of that is that the gospel still stands for me, that there is no condemnation for me. And I can read that verse tomorrow morning and it will be just as true. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And so I challenge you this morning to check your vital signs regularly. Do the spiritual disciplines that help you to grow in your faith. Be a part of a local church. If it's not this one, another one. If you're visiting with us. Be active in your church, serving alongside others, because if the, the biggest way to get your, your eyes and your, and your mind off of your problems is to serve others and their problems. Because there's always people with more problems than me. And so that's... That's one way that we build our faith is by serving one another. Be involved in small groups so that you're building community with other Christians. 
Because who do you need to talk to when you're struggling in life? Your pagan uh, brother or your pagan friend at work? Or somebody who knows Christ? Somebody who knows Christ. But more often than not, we don't do that. Why? Is it pride? I don't know. But we have to start building into each other's lives because that is what brings God glory and that is what strengthens our faith. And that is what will make those vital signs even stronger. Love for God and love for others. Our faith will be bolstered in Christ and our obedience will become easier if I can use that term. And so I encourage you this morning to be thankful for the gospel because at the end of the day, that is our hope, right? I do not have the strength to obey God today. I will not have it tomorrow. I do not have the strength to put up with you another day. And neither do you me. But the love of God constrains us, right? It tells us that He has a lot more to put up with than I do in me. And so that compels me to go another day. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the Gospel. I thank You, Lord, that You have um, provided Christ our substitute and for His substitutionary work on the cross. Lord, we know that as we, if we stood before You this morning, today and pleaded our own case, we would, all of us, be condemned to an eternity in hell. But, Lord, You have provided the substitute, the sinless Savior, the Son of God, and we believe in Him. Help, Father, our unbelief. Help us, God, to obey You to love you and to love others. Give us the grace to be a church like that. That like the early church, after all these people were saved, all these people were cut to the heart as they understood the enormity of their sin. This church was a dynamic church, God, because they were loving you and loving others and serving each other. Help us to be that type of church. We give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.